Hi, and welcome to, back to What is Qualitative Anyway? My name is Vicki, and we are looking at the Visual Research Methods book, Chapter 7, Inner City Children in Sharper Focus. So in this chapter, she starts off talking about Nancy, which I think had the most impact her on her as far as the photo elicitation uh, methodology research she was doing. In the introduction, she talks about Nancy and her traje and, you know, her just her whole dress as far as being a mariachi singer. Um, and when she goes in to discuss how photo elicitation helped her to see aspects of the children's lives that she might have otherwise have not been able to see or visualize as an adult researcher. Um, secondly, she says photo elicitation helped her uncover some of the institutional practices that might have served to perpetuate educational inequalities that might have otherwise not been revealed by just examining the school setting. So she goes on to kind of further elaborate on that in regards to how when she mentioned to Nancy's teacher about her mariachi singing, the teacher stated that she thinks that the parents just use the daughter um, to do mariachi for money. Uh, and that perspective just showed the researcher that her teacher's perspective on Nancy's life and just everything as far as her culture, the way that she lives, was just coming from a one-sided angle. And it actually didn't give her uh, any advantage that she thinks that Nancy should have got as far as being able to, you know, to sing or maybe play instruments that typically would have been a achievement in school uh, as far as extracurricular activities. And when I read that, I thought about my social problems class that I took and I thought about labeling theory or maybe learning theory, just how children can view themselves in a school setting based on what they're being taught or labeled as. So the teacher wasn't labeling or acknowledging her skills. So Nancy, in my eyes, didn't interpret what she was doing at home as something beneficial to her, as a, uh, something that could benefit her as a student. And from there, I just looked at my life in comparison to her because I saw myself in a lot of these uh, student interviews that she did as a child and how I felt my life at home as a Mexican girl, you know, who was grew up very Catholic, strict, you know, was a separate life for me from school. And had teachers kind of looked at the different cultures that maybe students had, it would have been easier for me to feel more as part of that community at school. I always felt that it, I was separate. I had two separate lives, and I kind of see that with Nancy looking at it more broadly, how her life was kind of separated from work or from home and school. Um, from here, she moves on to the study part of the uh, chapter. She describes how she kind of became immersed into the school and social lives in an academic year and that's where she realized that many of the children had a really complex home life which a lot of Mexican children like I stated myself we do our home life is not how a typical childhood is viewed. I remember my mom working constantly 
after our father left us working several jobs, but she still put herself through college. That was something that she was going to do no matter what. And in the end, she did sacrifice a lot of time that she spent with us. Me and my two brothers were at home all day, but she constantly would call to make sure we were okay. Uh, I always had to make sure that the home was clean while my brothers pretty much got to hang out. So like I said, I saw myself in a lot of this chapter, and I appreciated uh, Marisol looking into these children's lives and creating that context and that literature and this research for people to look at and not to just sum up, you know, children's lives and compare them all the same, you know, because, but the shortcomings in sociology of childhood is the next portion of the chapter, which goes into what I was just discussing, how middle school or middle class childhoods are going to be much different from that of children in these inner cities. Um, and this is where I think intersectional theory or, and conflict theory comes in, intersectional theory in regards, which she does mention in the chapter, that Nancy was able to show the different intersections that her life had as far as being a young girl, um, being Mexican, the work they had to do, also school. Um, their lives are going to be different from a middle class household where maybe the parents get to stay home more and have the kids focus on their studies and then also conflict theory as far as the different struggles that they have and like the mom in one of these uh, students lives where she was upset that the daughter wasn't taking pictures of you know her family and more so what I saw it as is pictures of what her mom was doing it took me back once again you know I kind of felt for the mom and I, I see the mom seeing her struggle not being recognized in the young girl's photos. I think everything she does, does is for her children and she wants that to be portrayed in those photos because that is consumes her life. So I think that's where conflict and intersectional theory can come in uh, to this portion of the chapter. Another big thing that I recognized in, these, in this chapter was the autonomy of children. I think it's very important for children to be able to have autonomy. I think so many times we overlook that in children, and I think she argued that a lot in this uh, chapter. States in the chapter, any inner city childhoods are framed as unidirectionally, un unidirectionally shaped by outside forces disregarding the ways in which kids are shaping, creating, and negotiating aspects of their childhood experience in an inner city. So these children are conceptualizing, you know, their their life through those photographs. Through the photographs, um, she says, uh, photographs can generate data illuminating a subject that otherwise may be invisible to the researcher but blatantly apparent to the interviews. So it's kind of like you're stepping into their world and they're allowing you to see their lives, you know, with those photographs. It's easier for them to explain and. Uh, talk to the researcher. It's what she called auto-driven photo elicitation is the best method for um, this type of research with children where the children where the child is pretty much driving the uh, the interview. How these maybe some of the most common challenges that you have in interviewing children like the uh, level of linguistic communication, their cognitive development, the question and answer setting, you know like the interview setting the accentuated power dynamics of interviewing a child is becomes easier through this auto-driven photo elicitation. It's
Another part of the chapter that I wanted to touch on, though, was the section of visualizing the texture of inner city childhood. In it, she says, she says, photo elicitation as a method is good at giving children agency because the images and explanations mainly come from the kids themselves. This responds to the call for sociologists to allow agency when studying children. That's very important. I think that's the best way to communicate with them, to be able to understand them. I think that's where symbolic interactionism comes in. You're allowing them to connect to the images and explain what you know connections they feel, how they see themselves in those pictures, and how they interpret those, the context of that picture, whether it be the problems in the setting or the way that they interact with their family. It's the best way to be able to work with children. And she further kind of touches on that as far as saying second uh, auto-driven photographs show me students' interpretation of material reality. She explains how some of the images that they showed her, she saw different conflicts in those images, um, like the everyday threat where the boarded up illegally occupied homes, the bars on the windows, the constant helicopters. But she says for the kids, threat was symbolized in a more personal, intimate way when they took pictures of some of their uh, more costly belongings just in case they ever got stolen. So they viewed things differently than what she would have viewed it as a researcher, you know, in her sociological mind looking at the outside in. Um, the kids were able to give her a different interpretation of how they um, symbolize the threats to, to their uh, lives. Then another thing that she noticed, she says, fourth, I am finding a gender difference in the position from which the photos were taken. And this is where I think gender conflict theory comes in, where she discusses how some of the boys were able to take pictures from the outside while the girls took pictures from the inside out girls are viewed like they need to be taken care of and boys you know of course you know they're protectors or they can you know they always have more uh, freedom than girls do and from here moving on to the end of the chapter I wanted to touch on where she says sociology of childhood scholars urges researchers not to view children as passive recipients of larger cultural processes or constraints she says John Wagner writes that such uh, methodology can benefit social, as far as photo elicitation, can benefit social scientists interested in examining the connection between people's lives and the social and economic structures of the larger world. And this is where our sociological imagination comes in as far as what are the larger things in society um, that these children are connecting with, and then you can see the way that they're, uh, I guess, symbolic interactionism, how they're relating themselves to those things. They're not just there, you know, like she says, passively just there um, with you know, everything interacting around them. They're part of this world and they each view it differently, you know, as far as the some of the kids that were undocumented, worried about immigration, some of the kids that had to go to work with their parents, um, they had to deal with crime uh, and all of this at the same time, building relationships with friends around them, uh, their relationships with their family and also their school settings, how they interacted between those two things. Like I said, for myself, growing up, I realized that I had two just separate lives. I had my life at home and then my life at school. At home, we spoke Spanish. I listened to, or I watched telenovelas all the time. I listened to Spanish music. Uh, and then at school, it was completely different. I couldn't speak Spanish at school. I didn't want to eat my lunch that my mom gave me that were tacos, you know, I was embarrassed with the other students, you know, were sitting there eating their veggies and this and that, and I remember being embarrassed. Um, and I think that is where that division, that divide 
with this type of research, it can bridging that gap, that gap, the gap between um, what some of these children that have different cultures and different lives from other children, bringing that into the classroom, talking about these things, having the children connect with one another, maybe even using these photographs in the school setting and letting the children explain you know, their lives to one another can help them feel more connected. Um, I saw that as a way that this type of research could go further into helping uh, students connect with each other more and even teachers getting that outside look in that Marisol was able to get with this type of research. I really enjoyed this chapter just like you professor. I saw myself in it so much. Um, the little girl named Victoria, as soon as she said her mom worked multiple jobs and was going to school, that is exactly how my life was. And I have the same name. It's amazing how you can find yourself in these stories and um, relate to them and connect to them. So I appreciate this chapter and thank you for listening.